Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. We've got a bit of a treat for you today. We're breaking the mold to some degree. Instead of having three segments, we're just going to have two nice long segments. And we've got three guests joining me for both of them. So you've got a nice quartet of college coach experts on the line today. We're going to start visually. Now, if you can watch this on any of our social media channels, you'll be able to see everybody and we're going to do some screen share. But visually, I'm going to start to my left uh, and introduce DJ Meehan, who is a former admissions officer from many institutions, including Reed College and uh, Connecticut College. She comes to us by way of uh, counseling at an independent school in Puerto Rico. DJ, it's really great to have you. This is your first time on the show, I think, correct? This is. This is my first time. Yeah, great to be here. Okay. Glad to have you. Um, we are not having extra guests because it's your first time. We're, we're totally confident you could do this on your own, but <laughs> we thought it would be fun to bring a few of us together. Um, the second person that I'd like to introduce going counterclockwise around my screen is a, a uh, admission officer who's joining us new this year. Um, I'm really excited to have him aboard is Niall Relay. Hey, Niall, how are you? Excellent. Happy to be here. Glad that you're here as well to help walk us through our topic. And then we've got someone that y'all have heard plenty from over the years, one of our college finance experts, Shannon Vasconcelos. Hey, Shannon. Hi, Ian. You've heard too much from me. I'll try we, and keep my mouth shut today. We do this But I can't often. control myself. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to track down for today's show that I couldn't get a hand on um, you know, in time was like a siren sound for a nerd alert. Because this is like a super nerdy <laughs> podcast that we're hosting today. We yes. are going to talk about data. And we're not yeah. talking about the data from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Uh, that might be saved for another podcast. Woo, woo, woo. I, I'm, I'm sounding the nerd alert on that Star Trek reference. I better put my glasses on there, Shannon, because we're really going to dive in deep. Um, but we want to talk a little bit about how students can use data we're going to focus in particular on two resources. Um, the common data set is what we'll spend our first segment on. And then we'll talk a little bit about some data that you can use from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Again, what I want to say is if you are able to look at this as a video on our Facebook page, um, that's at facebook.com uh, facebook slash college coach. Okay, good. Thanks, Shannon. You're our social media maven. So you knew that. Um, we will have this up and I'm going to do a screen share so that we can walk through some of these data and talk a little bit about what we are seeing from them. So that might be a good resource if you want to check it out afterward. Um, but let's just start with something really, really simple. And DJ, I want to throw it to you. Um, a lot of times counselors will talk to students about how they can figure out what schools are going to be their reach schools, their target schools, their safety schools. And we'll point them to like a student profile or admitted student profile. Can you just give a, a rundown for our listeners of what that is exactly? Um, an admitted student profile will give uh, sort of a snapshot of data, right? Um, for the, the last admitted class or, or series of classes at an institution, um, providing kind of a snapshot of the person, you know, the, the, 
distribution um, of their admitted students by academic profile, um, sometimes rank in the class or sort of um, by sort of bucket by GPA um, kind of category. Um, for schools that you know are considering testing and can still actively consider testing in, in, in their, their application process, you'll also see a snapshot of um, of sort of median testing ranges for the SAT and ACT uh, for the students who submitted testing that were admitted, right? So that may not include students who didn't submit testing. Right. Um, but those I, are the two major data points, yeah, that we, that we can kind of lean on. As with everything in data, like it's part of the story, but then there's this mm -hmm. larger picture of where the samples come from and what exactly yep. is contributing to that. And so yep. always be careful in terms of how you're using these resources. Right. Now, typically that profile is drawn from a larger data set. Niall, that is the common data set. And what exactly is that? I think that's something that admissions um, officers are aware of, that counselors are somewhat aware of, but typically students and families have no idea what it is and haven't encountered it. Can you introduce us to the CDS? Absolutely. As you can imagine, reliability is key here, right? And also reliability of data, uh, who's the source of the information can, can influence things a lot here as well. Here's a market where we are inundated with information and data. And so the common data set stepped in as a resource to help provide some of that reliability, provide some of that consistency, provide some of that consistency, particularly around definitions. What do we mean by a particular term in this world? Subtle differences in definitions can create a big difference in result in data as well. So that's the, that was the general purpose of the common data set. And it's a platform where colleges, typically the institutional research offices at colleges, people who know numbers well, who know data well, uh, will gather this information and share this information out, um, responding to really specific questions to a common data set. And, and that platform is then used by a lot of different folks, for example, Peterson's, uh, you might have heard of, you know, some of the big, bigger name ranking systems. They would also rely on uh, the common data set in order to draw their own conclusions from that data. One of the things that I had to do in my role at the Reed Admission Office was every year to go through with some of our partner organizations and fill out the info from our mm -hmm. common data set into their complete data set. So the idea being, hey, we've gathered all this information from our IR page. Let's make sure that it's out there in the world so that people who want to know more about our institution can find it. Now, Niall, you pointed me towards the Boston College common data set and the UC Irvine or UC Riverside common data set. Um, and I'm going to pull those up. Do you have a preference for which one of those two we look to initially? I have BC open in front of me as well. So let's All right, start. great. So I'm going to go ahead and share that screen. Um, and what you'll see uh, if you're looking at this is that there's a, an institutional research page or a common data set page for BC, and it's got some of the info that DJ talked about with respect to that student profile. But then the data set is actually much more complex, and it's down here at the bottom. Um, Niall, do you want to talk us through what we're initially looking at when we pull up a common data set? Sure. And before we jump into that, if you don't mind, um, I'd have to share that not every university will have this readily right. available for download, right? But honestly, the best way to find it, if you're curious, is to Google common data set in the name of, of the university that you're, you're hoping to find that data from, right? And then also keep an eye on what year uh, that data is from. So as you can see, 
on this page, if you are uh, watching the video alongside, it says Common Dataset 2021-2022 on the top of the page. So that tells us we're looking at a pretty recent, uh, if not the most recent data set. So starting off, you're going to find some, some quite some general information about who reported the data. Um, and if you scroll down, you're going to continue to see um, just some of the fundamentals of this institution, uh, what sort of degrees do they offer their address, information like that. Uh, then we jump into to really valuable meat, meat on the bone here. Uh, a ton of great enrollment data, uh, the actual number of students who are enrolled uh, for uh, as an unformed toward an undergraduate degree, those enrolled uh, toward graduate degrees, and then they start break that to start to break that data down a little bit, for instance, into enrollment by racial or ethnic categories. Uh, so if that's an important figure for you, right, you could certainly look past if you'd like um, some of the the sparkly brochures or emails and, and go right to the source, right, and say, okay, uh, if I, uh, you know, if if, uh, if diversity on campus, for instance, we say non-resident aliens, that means international students, if that's something that's really important to you, you can really look at the numbers and, and, and you might in some of these situations have to do a little bit of math, right? Uh, look at the total number and look at uh, the the raw um, numerator in this case and say, okay, what is the percentage of students that might identify as a particular, uh, within a particular racial ethnic category? But that's super handy, right? It's 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 real raw data reported from the institution itself, and as a result, uh, can be quite reliable. So, yeah, if I, I wanted to just pause and ask G, DJ to jump in here, because you know, DJ, you've had a, a lot of background um, in supporting students who come from underrepresented backgrounds with different kinds of programs and scholarships, and and. How do you advise students who are looking at data like these to use them? How should they think about that in the context of a school? Like this is this is just numbers. It's not a campus visit. It's not meeting people. Right. It's just numbers. So how can this be potentially helpful for a prospective student looking through it? I mean, I, I think it's just that they are just numbers. I mean, this is a case where, where the data is is sort of limiting, <laughs> right? And doesn't yeah. doesn't tell a full story. Um, I mean, certainly, if you're comparing institutions, you know, and looking at this data, you 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 are going to see see some significant differences, you know, and and in some cases, again, comparatively speaking. Um, it, it does share a lot and, and does tell a significant story. Um, but again, <laughs> it doesn't tell the full story. It doesn't really talk about a student's, those students' experiences, right, like on that campus. And that's where, you know, I think looking at the numbers is important. You know, if you see a campus where, <laughs> where there are no, you know, I mean, there are some campuses that, that are going to be predominantly white and that might be difficult. Um, and when you see those numbers and you see those ratios, um, I think that's a good reality check um, to then prompt you to do more research, right, into support services, organizations on campus, the sort of lived experience of students on that campus versus, you know, just the superficial numbers. Um, but they are, you know, again, I think a valid point of comparison um, because they're there is going to be, you know, a, a range um, in terms of diversity and, and if having, um, you know, a critical mass of students like you on campus is important in addition to resources, support, mentoring and all kinds of other, you know, um, it's worth it's worth looking at um, and kind of seeing those percentages. I also think, you know, again, the, the, these numbers also give us a little guidance too when thinking about sort of the overall composition of the class <laughs> um, and allows us to be a little bit more granular as well about, you know, 
admit rates and, and, and things like that, you know, yeah. um, Definitely. It's also it's also useful that way, right? The whole class can't be <laughs> one thing. <laughs> that's exactly right. right. You know, no matter what happens with the Supreme Court, right? And so that's the other, you know, I think I think all of this data also helps us understand like the the composition of the class and the social engineering, right? Like, okay, 163 non-resident aliens, international students. That's that's a big you know, that tells me a lot about the campus too, like the percentage, right? Um, but also tells me that in the f next year, right, there's gonna be a good chunk of seats in the class already taken by non-resident aliens, right? So in terms of data, that composition piece, right? The 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 engineering of the class, I think this piece, you know, also helps us understand that and keep that in perspective too when thinking about expectations. Yeah. And I would add in from the financial perspective, one of the common things that we talk about a lot in, is maximizing merit scholarships. And to be very simplistic about it, to maximize merit scholarships, you want to apply to some colleges where you stand out. Think outside the box. You don't want colleges use merit scholarships as a recruitment tool if there's thousands of other students just like you at that school. There's less incentive for a college to want to recruit you with their merit scholarships because they already have plenty of students like you uh, in terms of various kinds of characteristics. But that's one thing I think about when I'm looking at the number of men and women at a certain college that's found mm -hmm. in this data set, the yep. number of students from all these different racial backgrounds. If you look at, let's say, Hispanic students at Boston College versus UC Riverside, tremendously different numbers. And if you are a Hispanic student, you perhaps stand out a little bit more at Boston College than you do at UC Riverside, which could have some scholarship implications for you. Not saying anything about these specific schools and specific um, scholarships that they may have, but it, it gets you thinking in a certain direction. Um, mm -hmm. So the, I think the statistics can be helpful for those kinds of purposes as well. Yeah. There's a important dueling perspectives there on scarcity. DJ talking about it from a standpoint of, are there going to be people like you that are, you know, can support you where you're going to feel at home, feel connected, yeah. right? There you want more of those. And then Shannon right. speaking to <laughs> scarcity as, Hey, right. if the school doesn't have if you much can be of the, this, if you're the unicorn, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the same is true, which we don't see here as much as like geographic diversity. Like, you know, there was all these other yeah. factors that, that also sort of play in. This is one of the elements, but um, yeah, being yeah. the unicorn, right. Is, is, yeah, strategically, sometimes a smart move. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that I'm doing here on the screen share is is we're flipping back and forth between Riverside and and Boston College, and and just comparing some of these numbers. And they're very different institutions on different coasts. One's public, one's private. But you can see kind of how those data are breaking down. Uh, Neil, do you want to continue walking us through some of the uh, the different elements of this that you think are most relevant for students who are considering these colleges? Absolutely. I want to point out what. Um, something relevant, if you scroll down to C7, I think it is, right? Um, the college admissions process in general, uh, or often I should say, um, has the, the double-edged sword of, of being holistic, right? And, and, and that for some students is, is, is such an empowering aspect of the process. They're like, awesome, you know, I get to be uh, this complex, nuanced person and I can represent myself in so many different ways. And for others, it's a little confusing. It's a little overwhelming. Like, I don't know what is important in this process. So they asked that question of colleges right here, right? In C7, it's the relative importance of each 
of the following academic and non-academic factors in the admissions process. And they're asking the university to report back, hey, of all these different uh, factors, what is very important, what is important, what is considered, what is not considered at all, right? And each of these colleges have the opportunity to respond and tell you directly what, in their own words, right, what, how, how, how a certain factor relative to another uh, is is playing an influence or is influencing the the admissions uh, decision making. So can I just uh, throw throw in? Sorry, oh, yeah, just yeah. for the benefit yeah, of our listeners, uh, if you're trying to do this at home and look at different colleges' common data sets, just to point out, formatting wise, they could look very different, but the labeling of each section is consistent. So as Nial referenced, section C7, <laughs> if you go to C7 for any college, you will see all the factors that feed into their admissions process. So that's the easiest way in my mind to compare things. Take a look at the n- letter and number for that section and look at that for different colleges. Sorry to interrupt you, Nial. No, that's great. And, and, and you see Riverside compared to Boston College here uh, for various factors, some of them uh, you know, complex and legal and state state related in California. You see in the in the Riverside context, so many of these factors are are not considered at all, right? And mm-hmm. and by policy, this is their approach. So uh, that that will differ. Oftentimes, there's a difference. You, you see a stark difference between public institutions and their approach to the admissions process showing up um, with regard to some of these factors versus private institutions. And here's a great comparison between the two. So poke around if you have an opportunity to check this out. C7, I think, is a really interesting little section there. Uh, and some examples here of factors for those listeners that aren't watching uh, the recording, the application essay, something that we talk about a lot with families is being really important in the process. Here's the UC system telling us, yes, indeed, the application essays, the personal insight questions is a very important factor in the process uh, relative to Boston College, which is saying it's important, uh, but not very important. So uh, yeah. what are other, yeah, other elements of, of uh, what can be sort of drawn out of the common data set? Uh, if you are um, a little confused on a university's website about the actual admissions process. What is the policy involved around testing? What is the policy involved around um, you know, early admissions versus early decision versus this and that? Now, obviously, this is a little bit retroactive. When you look at a common data set, you're looking at the prior year. Uh, but typically, there's not huge, you know, groundbreaking changes from one year to the next. So if you want to get a sense of actually what is the policy, what are the deadlines for a university in their admissions process, obviously, it helps to verify this by looking at the admissions website as well. Uh, but if you want to just cut right to it and check it out, you can take a look at the common data set and they'll lay that all out for you really clearly um, within a, a couple of the different sections here. And yeah. related to that, go on. I, I, think well, I, w- I wanted to add, there's a couple of things that I think are really underscored here. One is that colleges are fairly transparent about these things. Now, they're not giving you all of the details, but they will tell you, yes, that is important or no, that is not considered. So that information is available to you if you want to look at it. And what that means is that if you need to do any myth busting, because the neighbor across the street says that the level of interest at BC is super important, well, then you can go to that BC common data set and you can say the level of applicants' interest is actually not considered as a part of their review process. And they're not lying when they put this stuff up there. But I think one of the shortcomings of this is that we've only got four columns. We've got very important, important, considered, and then, of course, not considered. 
But when you're looking at an admissions process as it unfolds, it's a little bit more art than science. There's a little bit more of, you know, these different factors coming in and connecting with one another and overlapping. And some of them are more salient than others in certain circumstances. So it's not going to give you a perfect blueprint for what your application needs to look exactly like, but it can help you to understand what should you be paying attention to and what are the things that you don't need to spend your time concerned about or paying attention to. When you look and, at this, and it would be interesting, I think, if each of us were looking at the past institutions that we represented to say, okay, does that really match up with how we were reviewing applications when we were there? Did I, because I felt like the essay was very important. No, we actually put it as considered. Yikes. Um, I think it probably does align, but, uh, but you know, you got to be aware that there are still people in those seats making those decisions. And as we referred to earlier, I think, you know, one section of data taking the idea of okay, here are the requirements or here are the factors that influence admissions decisions. One set of data within the common data set that is, that is often really valuable to students and families that are looking at it um, is around the, um, the sort of banding of test scores, right? And also um, GPAs. So yeah. now we have to, for both of these ideas, have to ensure that we're sort of absorbing them with a big grain of salt because um, it's 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 never as easy as, as just the black and white, right? So for instance, with testing, as we referred to earlier, um, one thing that is actually really helpful is, is what percentage of students, and, and colleges sometimes report and sometimes don't, but you can get a sense, okay, what percentage of applicants in a particular applicant cycle actually did report their SAT scores or did report their ACT scores? We often get the question, you know, if my SAT score, ACT score, if I don't submit my SAT score, ACT score, am I going to be viewed negatively? Um, because sometimes students have the impression that they're part of the 5% of students that did not submit their score. And maybe there are universities out there where, that have a test optional policy that that's the case, but you often see numbers that maybe surprise you in terms of what how low they are, right? Um, this surprises me. That's the Boston College number right? we're looking at right now. Right. So it, for Boston College, for instance, 30% of students submitted their SAT score and 20% of students submitted their ACT score. And it's possible there's a little bit of an overlap for students who maybe <coughs> also submitted both. Um, it's, it's, I want to qualify this just really quickly that this is students who are enrolled at Boston College. So this does yeah. not describe the applicant pool. It describes the students who actually said yes and are coming into Boston College in the fall. Right. So, that, right. so that's one aspect in which the data might be a little bit skewed. Of course, everyone who enrolls was admitted, but not everybody who was admitted was also right. enrolled. Thank you for that. Yeah. And so it also breaks down the 25th percentile. I think this is for admitted students, correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, right? Uh, and the 75th percentile, which gives you the mid 50% range, which is a number that you will often see on admissions websites. So it breaks that down for the SAT and the ACT. Um, go ahead, DJ. Yeah. No, I think it's for the enrolled students. Is so admitted, students? admitted yeah. and enrolled. So the freshman class right now at BC, like that's their testing profile of the however many 40, 45% or whatever that number, magical number is that's submitted. Thank you, um, which is a great reminder. One thing that the, that the common data set does really well is use super clear language. Uh, so if you scroll all the way down to the end of the common data set, you will see a couple of pages that are just definitions. You know, what do we mean when we say financial need? What do we mean when we say uh, X, Y, and Z in this context? And, and so, so that's really helpful to get, to get really, really grounded in consistent language. 
Yeah, Shannon, I want to call you in here to see if there's anything from the financial aid definitions or from the common data set that points to some of these different financial aid considerations on the part of families. Yeah, I think that actually the section we were just looking at with the average SAT and ACT score and then the following section um, takes a look at the GPA ranges for the enrolled students. Uh, very, very helpful on the thinking about finances and your chances of receiving a scholarship at the given institution that you're looking at. Again, schools are using scholarships to recruit students they want the most. They want the students that are going to bring up all of their averages, bring up those SAT scores, bring up their, their average GPA. So that can give you, again, as you said, Ian, it's more art than science. Um, so some using some of this data is sort of a little bit artificial and trying to to um, to make it more the science that it is not. But it can give you a sense if you see your GPA, your ACT score is well above average for the school. You know that you have a good shot of, of winning a scholarship. On the flip side, if you your scores, your GPA are well below average you can expect that, you, that your scholarship chances are not great at that particular institution unless you have something else potentially going for you. Um, so those are some statistics that I look at from the financials perspective a lot from the common data set. Um, the other section that's all about finances um, is section eight. I'm sorry, H, <laughs> that I think can be um, very helpful. It's a little, I would say, more wonky. Um, it's a lot of numbers, so it's a little overwhelming to look at. So again, here's all the different definitions. Talks about, I'd say two big categories uh, that it talks about are need-based aid and what it refers to as non-need-based aid. Typically, need-based aid is based on your financial aid application, your FAFSA, potentially your CSS profile. It tells you in the common data set what financial aid applications are required. What it refers to as non-need-based aid is typically what we think of as merit scholarships, often academic scholarships, athletic scholarships are thrown into that bunch as well. Um, you can see here, Ian, if you stop scrolling, what methodology the school uses to award financial aid federal methodology, meaning they just use the FAFSA and the formula that goes along with that, or institutional methodology, meaning they also use the CSS profile, and that has a whole separate formula, takes some more factors into account that is good for families to know what forms you need to fill out, and they, it could play a significant difference in eligibility for some families. Um, it breaks down here what kind of financial aid this school awarded in this 21-22 school year that we happen to be looking at. Um, in isolation, these numbers don't necessarily mean a lot, um, but you can kind of get a sense of schools that are more or less generous, that have more institutional money to give away, or those that are maybe just working for the most part with government financial aid. Um, I love this little chart that Ian, in H2 that, that we have on the screen now, uh, again, a little wonky. You have to look at it for a while to maybe understand exactly what's going on here, but it's sort of a breakdown of how many students, uh, how many students the school has, and then how many have applied out of that number, how many have applied for financial aid. Out of that number, how many were awarded financial aid? Um, so again, it can give you a sense of how generous a school 
tends to be. Um, if you look at what number, can you scroll down a little bit more, Ian? Number that I like, uh, row I, <laughs> the percentage of need that was met um, the average percentage of need. Um, we're like, must be looking at, yes, Boston College, they award, they meet 100% of financial need for every student that they accept. Um, you will notice if you look at a, a number of schools, this is a rarity. If we go over to Riverside, we're not going to see them meeting 100% of financial need. Um, so that that's an interesting stat to look at. You can also see in that same chart, if we yeah, so on average, Riverside is meeting 78% of financial need. Um, if we go down a little bit, I think it's in H2A, you will see the number, the first of all, the raw number of students who did not have financial need, but were awarded merit scholarships, and then the average amount of those merit scholarships. Uh, again, you'll see very different numbers for Boston College and for Riverside based largely on the different costs of the institution. Um, but I, and again, I think the averages can give you a sense of how generous a school tends to be. But in fact, it only tells you so much because it all depends on how you compare to the average student. If, even if a school is very generous on average, if you are a below average student at that school, you might not see much funding. And for even a school that's not particularly generous, if you're the, the unicorn at that school, you might see a lot of funding. So again, it only tells you so much, but it can be helpful in getting kind of a sense of schools. Yeah, there's, there's such a huge caveat that is connected to these data sets, which is that it gives you really a broad brush strokes picture of what to expect from schools, but you've got to understand what you're looking at and how to interpret it, right? So Boston College, for example, says that there are 28 first-time full-time freshmen who had no financial need who were awarded a scholarship. 28, that is a small, small number. <laughs> and the average for those is $29,000. Now, some people look at that and say, great, I could get a $29,000 scholarship for Boston College. But Shannon would say, hold on a second, that's 28 students, that's such a small sliver. And with yep. anything that you're looking at here, you've got to really be careful of drawing big conclusions based on data that are incomplete. Yep. There are some exactly. limitations that are connected here. We're going to talk about the Bureau of Labor Statistics when we come back from the break, but I just wanted, before we do that, I know the common data set is big. There's a lot of content to be shared here. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that we're able to wrap this up with any additional thoughts, DJ or, or Neal, that you might would, have. DJ, why don't you, you go ahead? I was, I was going to say it's useful data source for schools um, that offer early decision or early action. Mm -hmm data. So for a family that's contemplating early decision or early action, you can see very clearly sort of the differences in their admit rates. Um, so it's yes. worth referencing the common data set for the most accurate um, information on, on those different application plans. Um, right. And then finally, I'd say the, the other limitation to consider and to be clear about when you're looking at the common data set, if you're looking at a large university with multiple sort of entry points and different programs and selectivities, uh, the common data set can be really limiting, right? Yeah. So if you're looking at the common data set for NYU, that includes, you know, applicants <laughs> to Stern and applicants, <laughs> you know, to, to Tisch. Um, and so the data isn't going to give you a very accurate snapshot of what, you know, the Stern bar for, for testing is going to be versus, you know, a student who's applying for, for an arts program. And so that would be the other thing I would yeah. underscore to families is just to be sensitive about that um, in terms of the admissions data. Program and college does matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. and as a final thought on the common data set itself, 
Uh, you can spend hours and hours and hours going through this. Right? <laughs> Nerds. Uh, we almost have in a second. <laughs> and uh, I think the real value um, of using something like the common data set or not being hesitant to click on that link when you come across it is particularly in those moments where you're feeling overwhelmed and just inundated from all ends by information and data and you just want to cut out some of that noise, right? And you want to say, okay, I have this question. I really want to understand this particular aspect of the institution. Obviously the context is key as we've been saying, but let me just go to this source and see if I can get that that little piece of information or, or get you know a, 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 a clear sense of something that, that would really help you along in this process. And it's without the marketing spin. Yeah, which exactly. I think is key. Exactly. It's just the raw data. And by the way, if anyone is following along with the video and just getting overwhelmed by the amount of data, I just recommend another source. The College Board's Big Future website contains some of the key statistics from the common data set, but not all of it. So if you just want to pull out kind of a couple of key data points, you very likely could find them on the College Board in sort of a prettier format, and you may find it less overwhelming if the stats are not your thing. All right, but what, if you're what, a nerd, go for it. You're gonna yeah, we, was like, <laughs> we need to take a break and give our listeners a break because I think we probably have overwhelmed them a little bit. Maybe they'll come back on the other side of it and maybe they're like, archive this podcast immediately. <laughs> I'm going to wait till next week. But when we come back, we're going to talk about an entirely different set of data for an entirely different set of purpose, which is the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which has such great insight into career outcomes. So stick around. We've got more to show you. Uh, we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to 
gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We've got DJ Meehan, we've got Nial Relay, and Shannon Vasconcelos, and me, Ian Fisher. I don't even know if I introduced myself at the first segment. Uh, I'm hosting today. We're talking all about numbers and trying to make sense of some data that are out there to help you in your college search. And now we want to turn our attention to the career search and understanding a little bit about how majors might be connected to particular professional outcomes of interest to students. So if you're watching this on our social media page, you can see the screen share that I've got up now. If you're listening, we're going to make it rich and exciting for you even without this. Um, I am at the website for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is bls.com. Gov. They are the ones that do the monthly employment reports. They track all kinds of information about jobs in the United States of America. And they have a really wonderful resource here on their website. Down at the bottom, it's called the Occupational Outlook Handbook. I'm going to click on that and pull it up. And we're going to talk a little bit about how students can use this as they're thinking about their futures. So let's just start big and broad. DJ, I've clicked this link. We're at the OOH. What is it? Oh my gosh, it is like a treasure. This is like a magical place. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me love the Department of Labor. Um, First and foremost, I'm a big fan. I recommend downloading this app. I just did it the other day and it was like, this is great. Like at your fingertips, you have this tool, which is fantastic. Okay, so first first and foremost, um, accessible on your phone. Um, Second, there's a couple of things. Actually, Second, I'll point to the glossary. I'm a big fan of the glossary. It's like the fourth thing over on the top there. Usually glossaries aren't that sexy, but again, nerds unite. Um, (laughs) This is a really nice glossary, particularly. So for example, if you go down to education, so this is like a bunch of microeconomic terms, but also terms related to sort of the college process, post-secondary sort of attainment goals. So like, I love the definition, right? Of like breaking down what a doctor is, a master's degree, an associate's, a bachelor's. Like there's just a lot of sort of fundamental definitions in this glossary that I, that I find are really useful. Um, and I know as, as a high school counselor, I often <laughs> took for granted, <laughs> like I was talking to kids about the four-year degree and they had no idea like what a bachelor's degree was or what right. an engineering yeah. degree was. So as a starting place, this glossary is is really awesome. And again, like, like an adulting one-on-one kind of glossary, it's very useful. Um, and I love the way it's written. I don't know who's writing for the Department of Labor, but they've got like a nice Hemingway kind of <laughs> Like clear, like no BS style that I find really um, instructive, just the way it's set up. So glossary would be my my first point um, of departure. Um, second, I love how this is set up. So I was thinking about this earlier. I, when I was a kid, I loved, you know, the original like Roger's thesaurus, like the old school mm-hmm. sort of system mm-hmm. that he had set up where you would like search for a word in the back. And then he had like these six different sections that you would like cross-reference. And, and I was a nerd who loved to read the thesaurus because it wasn't just about sort of synonyms it was sort of seeing like a web of connections right and sort of understanding vocabulary in a larger way I feel like this is what they've done (laughs) with this little system in terms of helping us understand um, a network of career opportunities and skills and sort of how they all connect and how they might overlap um, and allows I think students and families to to kind of see things they might not have seen otherwise so they've got this set up by occupational groups which is you know usually easy enough for a 16 or 17 year old to like identify like some general groups of interest but then when you 
go into the different occupational groups, it gives you like a really nice menu and, and laundry list of different ideas um, that are e still within them pretty broad, right? Of different sort of other like vocational directions that could be connected to your interests. Um, then, uh, and this is me again, geeking out, like this is where the thesaurus piece comes in. There's this other page that's connected to BLS. So there's a, several pages. So if you go to that main homepage, like, um, actually pick, go back to like art and design. Let's go to art, arts and design and occupational groups um, and pick art director as an example. If you scroll down to the bottom of the summary, you're gonna see a link. It says more information, including links to ONET. When you find something that's interesting, like an occupation that's interesting, follow the, the link to the ONET. And so ONET is still part of this, depart this, this BLS page. Um, you have to kind of click to go out a little bit. It's a little clunky. They're, in that they're way. trying to keep us here in the BLS. They are. But then this is awesome. So this is ONET is like an occupational dictionary that's connected to to the OOH to the O. Um, and what's cool about the the um, the ONET is that then they go down and they go into real specificity of breaking down um, each occupation in terms of skill sets, knowledge, um, you know, actual like activities that you that you would be engaged in. Um, and then there's a little in, like an interest profile also connected to this that identifies your superpowers and your interests, and then allows you to kind of reverse engineer by identifying the skills or the knowledge sets that you're interested in. Can give you also ideas like of occupational direction. So it allows you to sort of, again, like reverse engineer a little bit um, using the, their little like identity profiler. Um, and then again, I, if there's things that you're already interested in, right? Like I went in there and it's fascinating. You know, I was like, let me learn about college counseling. Right? And then it, can, it can allow me to sort of reverse engineer the skill set that I already have in my current job, right? And identify other, other vocations, right? That I'm that I'm equipped <laughs> to do as well. So it's super useful, it's fun. Um, it's also connected, you'll see a link in there to something called Career One Stop. Again, this is all under the same umbrella. I'm not sure why, it's a little clunky in terms of how they all connect. Um, Career One Stop has a link to the same OneNet profiler, which is great. So if you go through Career One Stop, it'll take you to the same, you'll end up in the same places. Gotcha. Um, what's cool about Career One Stop, I think it's a little bit, uh, it's an audience that's a little older. Right, Career One Stop is has like resume um, tips, tips on networking, tips on finding jobs and search engines for, for more practical job searches. So that's where the difference is. Um, finally, students, if they're on the ONET, right, and they're like geeking out about what they learned about being an art director or whatever, they'll also see a link for something that says like Easy Read. And that's another website that, again, I think is for a younger audience. So if you have students that are like in middle school or younger high school, I recommend they check out. It's called My, My Next Move. And again, same umbrella, same database, um, but gives you like a little one pager um, that, again, I think is for a little bit more, is a little more accessible to a younger audience um, to give you an overview of that profession. The cool thing, too, about My Next Move is that they have these little blurbs in Spanish as well. Right. Which, which is nice for families, too, that, that want to sort of engage with this and learn a little bit more about, about different career pathways. That's great. And these yeah. all seem to be connected back to 
art directors, right? So I start with that <laughs> particular profession and yep. then I follow this rabbit hole, but it's not spitting me out to the top every time. Exactly. And so you can find related information that's all connected to that. Uh, absolutely. And it links to professional organizations, certification programs. I mean, if there are sort of licensing expectations, stuff like that, it takes you in all of those different directions. Um, I'm also a fan of like the similar occupations link. Again, like yeah. ways that we can sort of expand students' minds about different options so that they don't feel, you know, maybe so limited. Um, I think it's also great myth busting, for example, though, for students who are interested in like the creative arts where everybody's telling them, you know, they're going to go hungry, this myth of the starving artist, right? Like this, this is also like a really useful way to show like how, you know, you can have, you can be a creative professional, right? And, 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 and go in different directions. Um, I also like for students like that too, when you go into the ONET and it breaks down like the soft skills that you need, as well as the hard skills that you need, um, kind of reminds you like, for example, like the art students i love when you go into into the like the soft skills like the importance of like business management executive functioning yeah. skills being working like you've got to run a business right and so i think also having those conversations and understanding the soft skills as well as sort of the more like concrete skills connected can can help a student also sort of unpack a direction that makes you know sense for them and gives yeah. them a little a little structure um but that's the qualitative data i think shannon probably has a lot to say <laughs> about the quantitative data in there too yeah shannon did you want to point out anything else yeah. I mean, there are aspects of this that are related to pay now the pay typically is the median wage yeah for, so usually mid mid-career kind of professional not Correct. what you're going to get right out of college but how can students look at some of these data and think about that in terms of that return on the investment of an undergraduate degree? Yeah, and this is what I tend to look at the most when I'm talking to families about paying for college and often borrowing to pay for college and what kind of borrowing is reasonable based mm -hmm. on the student's career expectations. And I think we have to take kind of all of this with a grain of salt, understanding that what students think they're going to do at age 17 yes. often change. does not end up <laughs> what they're going to do. They could change many times in between. Um, but I like to, if they think they have a sense of what they might want to do, take a look at that career on that pay tab on this one stop um, and take a look at the, the average salary. And they actually, if you can go to, to anything, any job here, <laughs> you know what I'm, right. um, Ian, if you want to pull up, just because I was looking at it earlier and I like it, genetic counselor, just genetic for kids. And counselor. Genetic counselor. And the reason I pulled this up is because this is a job that in high school I had no idea existed. And when I was pregnant with my children, I had to go through some genetic counseling and I was like, this is a job. This is so cool. I remember when I was in high school, I liked the genetics part of biology class. I had no idea that this was a career field you could go into. I thought with genetics, maybe you could go into research science, but there's this whole other field. And when you explore on the Occupational Outlook Handbook, you can find careers like this. Like if you think you're interested in healthcare, you might think doctor, nurse, what else is there? And there's a whole list of things. But this, so if you could, yeah, we can just kind of scan through the tabs very quickly. There's a tab of what do genetic counselors actually do? What does your day-to-day -day job look like? Where do you work? Usually in a hospital. Uh, does that sound like a good, an environment that would make you happy? Maybe, maybe not. How to become one. So here it looks at the career 
expectations. You typically need a master's degree. So thinking about paying for that's an extra financial commitment. You have to think about if the field you want to go into requires extra education. The qualities there that are important to this job are those qualities that you have or would like to develop. And then the pay tab. I like to look at again when talking about families thinking of borrowing for college. Yeah is the amount they're thinking about reasonable. So you can look at the average salary for genetic counselors. Average, again, over you know a 40-year career is, is $80,000. That's a nice salary compared to the average of other healthcare professionals. You can see that comparison and the average of all occupations. So it looks like pretty good career pro, uh, pay prospects there. It also tells you, actually, sorry, could you flip back to, to the pay tab for section yeah. for a second. Yeah. It also tells you the lowest ten percent earn about forty nine thousand. Sure. When I'm thinking about coming right out of school, I would think more like the lowest ten percent as a way to don't think you're going to be making eighty grand right out of school. I would think more about that number, and it, it's not again not an exact science, but when you're thinking about borrowing for college, there's sort of a rule of thumb that I think is decent about don't borrow any more total over your four years of college than you expect to make your first year out of school. So if I thought I was going to be a genetic counselor, I probably wouldn't want to borrow more than $50,000 for college. And, you know, again, not an exact science, but a rule of thumb. What I would love to see people do with this data, which most people won't take it this far, but actually do a budget. When you're thinking about borrowing, okay, I'm thinking about borrowing $30,000. What does that equate to in monthly loan payments? There are lots of loan repayment calculators you can find online. Okay, can I actually afford that kind of monthly loan payment? Students who are, you know, 17 years old have never often maintained a budget, have never paid rent, have never paid for utilities. They often... They, oh, I'll sign on the dotted line to borrow $50,000, $100,000, not knowing what that means to their life. I would love for more students and parents do this with your student, work through a budget. Okay, this is what you might be able to expect in salary after you pay taxes. That's what this equates to on a monthly basis. Okay, now you got to pay rent. Now you got to pay utilities. You got to pay your car payment. And does this student loan payment fit into that budget or not? And yeah. that can help you get a sense of if this particular school and what I'm planning to borrow to attend that school makes sense for you, or if you might want to explore some other options. Um, but sorry, just to go back to the tabs, Ian, you can look at job outlook if there's expected growth in this field. Um, if you go to this, you can get actually state and um state demographics. So instead of like the national average salary, you can get more local information. And then I love the similar occupations. So it lists for if you were thinking about genetic counseling, well, what are some other options that might be kind of like that? Well, I could be a physician and make a lot more money. Uh, you know, the wages greater than 200000 for physicians. But I also need a professional degree. So there's going to be more of an investment there. Uh, do And you can learn all about that career. Or maybe, hey, marriage and family therapist. I never thought about that, but that uses some of the same skills. Lower median pay, am I willing to accept that? But I just love this website. I think it's a great website for exploring different fields. Um, and it does tell you kind of different, I think I skipped over this, but what um, different majors could kind of lead naturally yeah. into that sort of career field. So I think it can be good for that purpose. 
And Nial, you know, this is something where we have a lot of familiarity with this website and we know how to sort of pick through all of the different data and look at stuff and it's fun and interesting, but I can imagine for a student, it's fairly overwhelming. It's like, well, what am I, what's my future look like? And what's the information that's going to help point me in that right direction? I just got to decide where I'm going to apply to college, what major I'm going to apply for. How do you direct students to think about using this as a resource and, and helping it to answer some of those big questions they have about their future? You were asking the question. I was just going to chime in and and share that. In any case, and and you know, so often we we work with students who are like, forget a career. I have no idea what major I want to be, and I'm a senior in high school, and I still don't know, right? And 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 there are really great resources, and DJ referred to one earlier that will help get you moving in the direction of which of these occupational links do I even check out to begin with, right? So. Um, both ONET and Career One Stop have these skills assessments and interest assessments that will that will help you have vocabulary, right? To say, okay, these are the sorts of work environments I want to be in. I work, I, you know, I'm best suited to work in a team or outdoors or with my hands or at a computer or at a desk, and all those sorts of things can be factored in and help you get a stronger sense of um, which careers might be a good match for that. Um, so, so both ONET and Career One Stop have that, uh, and their free resources, which are awesome. But beyond that as well, you might find something like the Holland Self Assessment um, or the Strength Finders 2.0 Clifton Strengths. Um, these are these are websites where you might have to pay a little bit to to access them. Uh, those, those particular surveys, but but that's another route that you can go if you want to if you're enjoying that process of sort of self discovery uh, and imagining your future. Um, and, and then always, I think, related back to these tools that we've shared in terms of uh, uh, various occupations where you, where you can see those things manifest. I, I think there's a real important lesson here in that we very rarely with a student will ask them first off, what do you want to major in? Because the major is a tool. It's a, it's a potential pathway towards not even a guaranteed particular outcome. And I think a lot of families are thinking about what should my major be? When in fact, what we should be thinking about is what do I like to do? What kind of environment do I want to be in? What are my skills? What am I good at? What do I want to get better at? And I love that that's the language that you're all using as you're talking about this stuff. It's more about that discovery as opposed to, I need an answer right now at 15 so that I can start getting ready. Like that's that's not consistent, I think, with any of our practices. Uh, final word from any of you. Let's start with DJ. We'll go counterclockwise again. Just quickly, is there anything that you want students to take away from from this resource? I, th- I think it's the point that you just made, right? That that it, that it's it's that this is not like a limiting conversation. If anything, this is about opening up possibilities, <laughs> right? And and seeing the myriad of different directions that you can go in. It's not about sort of honing in on one thing, um, but preparing yourself and learning, right? And 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 being intentional then about developing the skills that that are going to get you to the next step. Um, it's fun, you know, that's, that's what, the idea, yeah. right? It's like, what a luxury that we get to sort of figure this out and learn about ourselves and, and be better people, right? And and the job and the employment, like, comes, right? Like, I guess that's, and I know that's sometimes, like, hard to <laughs> to accept or understand, yeah. right? But but if you put in the work and, and you're present and engaged in this life, like, it's, yeah. Nial, any final thoughts comes. from you? No, I echo that entirely. And, the, the, you know, the adage that many of you might have already heard that, 
you know, it's, you know, we're, we're preparing students, we're working with students, students are going to college in order to prepare themselves for careers that might not even exist in the future. So guess what, even this giant list that you get access to uh, via the, the these resources, it's not comprehensive, right? And, and that's such a beautiful thing. And, and um, so yes, really the idea is, okay, how can we help use these tools to be mirrors to students to be able to, to, to build that vocabulary and self-confidence about what they can do with their lives and also be open to that shifting if necessary. Right. Shannon, anything from you? Inform yourself and have fun. Love it. That's great. Speaking of staying informed, we'll be back again next week. We're going to have Beth on to host. We'll talk about what to do if your student wants to transfer as a college student. We'll discuss summer programs and whether it's too early to start thinking about them. Spoiler, it's not because we will be thinking about them in that segment. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how to receive in-state tuition as an out-of-state student. We hope you all have a wonderful holiday break. Thank you to DJ, Nial, and Shannon for being here. Uh, We'll see you all again next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.